Welcome back to the Compete Clarity Podcast. No one goes to school for competitive intelligence. If you listened to the show before or hung out with other CI pros, you'll know that despite diverse professional backgrounds, most end up saying the same thing. Well, I just kind of fell into it. But what if that's not you? What if you've got your sights set on CI as a career path? Do you have to hope and pray you just fall into it too? Not according to today's guest. Joining us today is Fahan Mangiani, Senior Manager of Commercialization and Pricing at Grafana Labs, a tech company with over 1,200 employees responsible for a lot of popular open source projects, including its namesake, the Grafana Data Visualization Platform. Today, we discuss Fahan's transition from Product Marketing Manager to full-time Competitive Intelligence Pro, what he loves about the job, and his advice for those looking to make a similar transition. We also discuss what it's like working on open source projects and the impact having the very DNA of your product open for the world to see has on your competitive intelligence efforts. Let's welcome Fahan Mangiani. All right, Farhan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Um, usually, we would kick the show off by asking for a little bit of your background, but today, your particular story, your journey through various roles, where you are today, that's going to be a pretty big area of our conversation today. So. Maybe before we get into that, like the meat and potatoes of it, super specifically, would you mind just giving us first a quick look at Grafana Labs, what you guys do over there, and maybe a little bit about what the CI program looks like too? Yeah, totally. So Grafana Labs is the company behind a lot of popular open source projects, uh, namely Grafana, where our, our namesake is, which is a visualization tool. Uh, what really brought the claim to fame is unlike other tools, you don't have to migrate your data into our tool in order to visualize it. So you can imagine uh, any data source, any data anywhere. You could be business data, you know, engineering data, whatever it may be, application data. You can have everything in a single place through our plugin architecture. So we basically take the friction of migrating tools. Um, that's how we got our start back in 2014. Uh, and then over the years, as we've been growing from an open source perspective, uh, we've also been launching our own commercial products in roughly 2019, um, both for the visualization perspective, but then to actually actually store the data as well as an alternative to our proprietary vendors. And uh, that brings us uh, to, to here mostly. Happy to go into to more detail. Just a little bit more about the, the CI program falls under product marketing which has four functions. Uh, so we have competitive, myself, we have commercialization and pricing. We have kind of your core product marketers, traditional sense aligned to our specific product area. And then we have enablement that makes up uh, our teams, roughly 15 people today. Um, Grafana Labs, roughly 200 employees, just for, for reference. Um, also for reference, when I joined uh, almost two years ago, uh, one, I actually came in on the product marketing side uh, aligned to some of our uh, one of our acquisitions before joining on the compete team, and I was employee roughly five fifty, uh, and then we shot to to twelve hundred. And even before I joined four years ago, we were at sub two hundred. Uh, so it's been massive, massive scale uh, the last three to four years. Awesome. Um, so twelve hundred employees, and you're the only uh, only individual dealing with CI, is that right? Or is that kind of spread out a little more correct. broadly through the PM team? Yeah, correct. So there's definitely collaboration across the board, uh, but in terms of 
full-time compete. I'm the only one. Awesome. So as I mentioned earlier, um, your career journey is going to be a big area of focus today. Um, and something we've gotten as feedback from like different members of the community is it's not always clear how to get into competitive intelligence or once you are there, it's not necessarily clear how to progress. Um, mm. So you were a product marketing manager and you've transitioned into doing competitive intelligence full time. Um, if I remember correctly, this was a very conscious decision for you, wasn't it? Uh, yes and no. So I was actually asked to take over uh, competitive and then, you know, I obviously chose to to go in and have been enjoying it since. Uh, competitive, if I think about the like three functions roughly of, of product marketing between kind of the enablement and, and competitive side, the go-to-market side, the messaging and positioning, in my opinion, competitive is is the easiest one to break into. Uh, just because you're most likely to overlap in the responsibilities in other roles, right? So even before I came to, to Grafana and for many other folks I talked to that don't have dedicated compete, obviously product marketing is, is picking up the slack there, uh, but also product when they're doing product launches or doing like some semblance of some sort of market research, talking to customers, learning about competitors. Um, oftentimes you have a technical sale, solutions engineers, even sales reps, right? Come from the competition. So then you have an idea, they're doing their own work to enable themselves and just upskill themselves. And so since a lot of people, you know, especially in go to market already have to do some semblance of competitive, you start to get familiar with the function and then it's the, the soft skills, right? How do you run this into a program? How do you scale something like this? How do you consistently uh, acquire more information, make it easy to find? Some of those things, which in my opinion, like can all be learned, right? Like having a good network, trial and error, experimentation, uh, just put something out there and iterate, like those things can can mostly be taught versus messaging and positioning is unfortunately something you have to refine over time, right? You can't, <laughs> writing emails uh, as an SDR is probably the closest thing I have to, to copywriting. Um, but even then, right, like it didn't translate super well to a landing page because I'm like, you know, bottom of funnel versus very top of funnel. And that was challenging for me. And similarly, go to market strategy. Um, there are a couple functions, if I think about it, a company that are, are somewhat similar, but uh, it, it's rare for someone to have that type of job, right? Unless you're, of course, like in, in product, you probably wouldn't have to like orchestrate uh, something across the organization in such a cross-functional manner so consistently. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, like, you know, people kind of fall into CI, you know, BDRs fall into it, um, enablement folks fall into it. So people kind of coming into competitive intelligence early on, um, you know, they're not necessarily going to fit kind of a template. They've all got like these kind of disparate skills. What did you focus on first? Um, and and what do you think helped you in terms of your approach to um, getting involved in doing CI full time? Yeah, great question. I apply the same principles basically every time I'm I'm trying to get a new role. And I think this is this framework is pretty applicable to, to any role. Anytime I advise anyone on, on breaking in, whether it's product, marketing, technical, non-technical, doesn't matter. You pretty much always use the same thing. Is uh the first thing is right, think about this from the hiring manager's perspective, right? Just like we do and go to market, think about the customer and work backwards. Think about the hiring manager and what you're trying to break into they're most likely doing this role or someone is doing this role and someone's trying to fire themselves, right? Because it's one of five jobs, 10 jobs, um, especially at smaller companies that they're doing. And so what you're trying to do is de-risk 
the investment in you, right? Is transitioning the time that they were spending doing the role to now training you on how to do it, that doesn't help them in any way, right? They're still spending the same amount of time. Their goal is to free up that time and allocate towards something probably completely independent of you uh, entirely. And so they're just trying to figure out who can I bring in that will just take this over and I don't have to talk about it uh, anymore, right? In, in, uh, in short. And so if you don't have experience, which most people don't, as in direct experience, come back and say, yeah, I've done this at this stage or whatever, you want to start building that portfolio. The other thing that's true for um, product marketers, but in most roles generally is everyone always has this like long list of shit that they don't get to, right? It's like the things that you just keep moving from week to week to week. They're like, oh, I've had a little bit more time, whatever. I'll, I'll get to these things. I go and ask for those things consistently. I do this as an SDR uh, when I was trying to break into product marketing. When I was in product marketing, thinking about competitive, um, I had the opportunity to do more competitive, but I, I just follow a similar process, which is I just while I am in my current role, I go to folks in the in the role that I'm trying to get into and I ask, hey, what's a project that you really want to get done in this time frame that you don't have time to do? I'd like to take a stab. Um, I'd like for feedback. It could be as minimal as possible, right? Maybe once um, or twice a month, whatever, something simple like that. And all I want you to do is point me in the right direction, right? And I'm going to keep figuring it out until I get it right. And ideally, if you have you know something that you've done before, just to help me understand like what the final output looks like, that'd be great. And if not, I can go figure it out. No problem. But that approach has been super helpful. Um, so when I was in SDR, I was actually doing competitive work. Uh, that was my first break into product marketing of a competitive analysis of a competitor that wasn't considered a tier one or tier two. So the product marketing team uh, deprioritized it, right? If it comes up, we'll do something. If not, no worries. But my SDR team specifically kept hearing about this uh, within our account list, this one competitor. So I did a quick analysis. Um, I got some feedback on it. And then I had an opportunity to jump into the enablement side where I was now doing a training for the rest of my team. Then I got to see it adopted and we got some more feedback. I improved you know, the battle card based on some new objections. And I went through the process, not even realizing at the time that I was doing product marketing work. And that's when, you know, for me, it was at the experiment, uh, experimentation phase. It wasn't as intentional. Um, so I wasn't like trying to break in. I was just trying to learn a new skill to help me in my SDR role. But then I realized that it was a lot more fun doing these other roles that weren't my core job responsibility. And that's when it clicked that I wanted to move first into product marketing. And then similarly, the more I did the role of product marketing, I was like, this bucket of work over here I have the most fun doing that. Uh, what It would be super cool to now have an opportunity to just double down there and see what that looks like. So for me, Grafana was less around the skill set and more the space. It's a very technical buyer, um, enterprise IT sale, right? You're talking 12 to 24 month sales cycles. Can I operate in that landscape, um, right? And still do a good job. That's what it, the challenge was uh, for for me, and that's why I came to Grafana. Mm, I think that's I think that's a really great response. Like we we hear quite frequently on the show about how a really great starting point for people if they're unsure is just like a listening tour. Just go around and align with all your key stakeholders or your internal customers um, for what you're going to be providing them with. But like I think you've gone a couple levels beyond that in like figure out what's bugging the person who's looking to take you on figure out what's on their plate that they want to do that's valuable, but they don't have time to do. 
or that they really just don't want to do and would like someone else to do because someone needs to take in a uh, step in and, and take care of the need for it. it. It's also great in terms of like stepping into the role and then having somewhere to go from there. If you're quite junior, you need to figure out how to take charge of something and show your value. You know, you have to take the opportunities where, where they kind of present themselves, as you said, right? So and then, as you said, you found yourself doing presentations to the rest of the team. And then people are taking notice and, oh, hey, like this guy's this guy's valuable. This guy's useful. This guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. On the career path thing specifically, I would say that I definitely had this uh, concern. I talked to a lot of folks in full-time CI first. Uh, my main hesitation was, uh, what if I want to go back, right? If I go full-time CI, then what? Do I only just run competitive programs at different companies and just keep, you know, going in whatever that looks like, whether it's building a team or just continuing to be a, um, an IC. And for most people, the answer was pretty consistent, which was, hey, you're still part of usually the product marketing team um, or some team, right? Whether you roll in a product, whatever, like your function is agnostic, but the point is you're part of a team, meaning you're going to work collaboratively with other folks on that team. You have good visibility into priorities and how the business is changing. You're having those conversations with the rest of your team of how you need to potentially adapt. And just like anyone else, you know, your workload can shift from a product marketer. I can get another PM at it. The company makes an acquisition. Somebody's got to align to that acquisition, right? Somebody's going to get this extra bulk of work. It's very easy to raise your hand in those scenarios and say, Hey, I'd love to do that, right? And start to even transition back to a more traditional PMM role um, if you're not really feeling CI, right? If you just want to do a, a quick tour, um, then you can always go back to kind of being this full stack uh, product marketer, as I like to call it. Or you can start to, in my case, because I also have enablement and pricing, uh, there's always an opportunity to just work closely with either of those functions as well, right? If that's something um, I'm interested in, the optionality is always there. Like I mentioned before, I always have visibility into what's that long list of things that they said they wanted to do at the end of the uh, beginning of the quarter that at the end they were like, oh yeah, I had to cut out these like four or five things. Those are all things that, that I have the ability and have before um, just as, you know, personal interest of saying, hey, like, hey, I'd love to take that on. And, you know, most people will not have conversations about, oh, that's not in your remit when you're taking work off people's plate. Nobody cares. Uh, you mentioned um, like your enablement um, and, and like pricing experience from your time as a PMM. Um, how much do you think that's kind of shaped the way that you're doing uh, CI right now at all as like um, a full-time competitive intelligence pro? Yeah, great question. So I think something I, I took a lot of inspiration from on the pricing side, particularly at Grafana Labs, uh, is how I spend my time. How I spend my time, I found, is actually very opposite to a lot of CI folks that, that I meet. So if I think about my buckets of work, 60%, right, majority of my time is actually uh, deal strategy, deal support. So in the field, with accounts, training folks on talk track on how to defend our differentiation or directly uh, talking to customers myself, defending myself, defending uh, our own value propositions and pressure testing them, right? Making sure they're they're actually good. That's something I I really picked up from uh, our pricing person, right? And he's he's the one who first shocked me, where he's like, if you are going to spend your time doing models all day, that's just math. You can do that all day, 
But if you don't get up yourself and defend this in front of a customer and you can't defend it, how the hell can you roll it out to the company and expect anybody else to get behind this pricing? You got to do it yourself. Uh, so I took that ethos and applied it to competitive. So before I put anything on any piece of paper, do any sort of enablement, I can come back confidently and say, I had 10 conversations with the customers of all sizes and this rationale made sense. Uh, to them, right? It was all good. We could have a productive dialogue and they, you know, I was able to keep my credibility and here are the things that I learned, you know, along the way. And, and this is why I think you should adopt that, that talk track. And now that's my, that's my enablement approach uh, as well, right? It's, it's usually a recap of like, Hey, here are five conversations I had where I actually use this talk track, use this collateral, here were the reactions and here's what uh, we learned along the way. Yeah, I'm just finishing up um, this the this this report on trends in competitive intelligence. It's the fourth year that we, we we've done it, um, and something that came back from a lot of people who took the survey was corroborate data points. You know, an N of one isn't particularly meaningful, but I love the approach of just going even further than that and just pressure testing what you've got. Like, you know, you can build the model, but you know, rather than just keep looking for proof that maybe this works, you can go out and test it and um, and get the feedback pretty much immediately, which just seems more efficient. Um, it sounds like it might be an approach that scares some people, but I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I think this is where it, it's helpful for me that I came from SDR land, right? So it's almost just defaulting back to the first skills I learned coming out of school. I was like, okay, let's just get in front of customers. You know, even it's not like I'm like cold calling a list. Like these are happy customers, right? It's like honestly the easiest meeting in the world to set up. It's like not hard to get ten meetings, um, and then just pressure test it, right? And like there's there's always challenges that customers are are facing, and kind of the same principles from from SDR days is like one is you always got to earn the right to ask. And everything should be a fair value exchange. Like those are two fundamental uh, pillars that drove me from my SDR days. And I still apply those today, right? So if I'm going to ask a customer for their time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, whatever, there's, I need to earn the right to ask first, uh, right? So if, whether that's earning the credibility from the account team uh, to introduce me in the first place and carve out that time uh, or figuring out a problem that I can solve that they're already working on uh, that gets me in the room. And now I can also, uh, I've earned the right to ask for my own agenda uh, then, right? And then it's a give and get. If I spend the first 20, 30 minutes answering whatever question they had about random competitor or market or whatever they're trying to do, then it's totally fine, in my opinion, uh, to come back and say, hey, I'd love to you know, throw a couple of questions at you. Is that cool? I'm just thinking about something I want to collaborate with you on. And that's worked uh, well for me in the past. If there are people like listening who maybe haven't done that before, haven't pressure tested uh, their positioning, their differentiation um, and stuff like that with customers, like on the phone directly, um, do you mind me just asking you like maybe some of the questions that you typically ask just to kind of pressure test that stuff, um, stuff that you find has worked for you before? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I found myself like overthinking a lot uh, the questions I, I should ask in the past. And I used to like write out all these questions and research all these questions and I had this real question bank. And then, and then I kind of came back to like first principles of like, this is just another human. Right? <laughs> and, be like, and so like just humanize the entire conversation. So now it's like, uh, it's not anything special, but 
pretty plain Jane conversation of like, hey, this is my role um, and framing it in the customer, right? So I usually introduce myself as, hey, I'm Farhan, I run the competitive team. What that means for you, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, is I spend a lot of time thinking about the competition, where we fit in, and how the overall market landscape is changing. So if there are questions that you have uh, about any of that, right, how we're different, how we approach the market, how we've changed over the last couple of years, how we think about XYZ competitor, I'm very happy to answer any of those questions. And that's usually the first part of the conversation. And they usually have, you know, oh, my boss asked me this. I saw this article, you know, tell me more about what you think. And then the transition is, uh, hey, so a lot of my role involves documenting our differentiation, right? And like having conversations just like this, where we're trying to show that our approach is unique and doesn't sound like every other vendor what do you think is unique about us? Why did you come talk to us in the first place, right? We reach out to you, reach out to us and just get some more context there. And then you keep going deeper uh, from there, right? Of like, oh, I know you're using this other vendor. What do you like about them? How do you see we're different? What have you seen that's you know not changed so much about the vendor that you wish had changed? What are What do you think about this? Can I hit you with some like hypothetical ways that we would articulate our differentiation? Do you think that would resonate with you? Would you feel comfortable using that language with your boss? Would you, you know, use that same thing with another team member? What is an easy way for me to tell you our differentiation that also makes it easy for you to go back and tell someone else, right? Because we know these aren't siloed conversations. Simple questions like that um, are, are usually what drive the conversation. Awesome. Thanks very much. I, I think that'll be really useful for people listening because, um, you know, as, as you say, some people aren't going to come into competitive intelligence with like the kind of SDR background. Some people might be a little more hesitant or reluctant to get on the phone. But from the sounds of it, it's going to be such a kind of like differentiator for them in terms of the amount of time they have to spend establishing whether or not something's effective or not, um, that there really doesn't seem to be much downside at all to it. Um, and just listening just listening to you speak about it, like, hey, it's just a conversation. It's just another human being. It doesn't need to be a massively serious thing. Just make sure that you offer value up front first and then just ask a few questions. Yeah, I think that'll be massively helpful. Yeah, totally. And just to drive it home, right? What that means for you, uh, at least for me, in my case, I spend zero time thinking about, oh, this document that I wrote, how many people are reading it? You know, is it good? I wish someone would give me some feedback. I don't pester sales reps to like bring me into conversation, right? I don't need to do any of that because I've earned that credibility already, right? By being able to share, oh, when I talk to XYZ customer, right? All of my arguments are customer based. It's not my opinion um, ever, right? And I make very sure of that, that uh, like you said, it's not a, and it's not a data point of one either. It's like, oh, I talked to customers seven months ago, that one time, and they told me this, and I just use the same one. Like I've talked to enough customers where I can very clearly see trends and now it's, a much more productive dialogue, especially with someone like sales, right? Who's also very consistently talking to customers, but perhaps a very different subset. And now it turns into a knowledge sharing session rather than a, uh, you know, I, I need a favor, you know, carve out some extra time for me uh, type of type of conversation. 
And then it also brings me very healthy inbound, right? So I get people hitting me up consistently to join deals because now I've shown uh, where I can add uh, value. So that's one. And for folks who are like uncomfortable reaching out to customers yourselves, um, think about all of your different stakeholders that are naturally having conversations that would love uh, someone who spends more time than they do thinking about the con uh, the market landscape and the competition and can answer questions intent intelligently. So you think about the different lines of your business, uh, the SDRs, for example, having a ton of conversations. Often that's where I start at any organization is just telling the SDRs like, hey, this is my role. I just started, but I'm happy to jump on any call with you anytime and just help answer the question. And if I don't know, I'll figure out who the right person is, right? And then repeating that. If you have a self-serve motion, um, repeating that, right? With your account executives, with your post-sale, with your professional services, with your support team. Hey, you get on the phone with customers? I'd love to jump on with you, right? And just start to gather these data points uh, yourself until you form your own relationships and then you can go from, from there. Is there anything that surprised you at all about the move from product marketer to competitive intelligence pro was the is the experience now kind of as you envisioned it would be or is there anything um you know having made the change you're like oh i kind of didn't didn't realize this would be this way positive or negative i think the most surprising piece is how much is in your control and how much relies on execution all right. Oftentimes, like performance of a quarter, for example, and, and even on the enablement side, we used to have these like very hypothetical conversations as product marketers uh, of like all the things that are leading to, uh, you know, quarter not not going well. Uh, and there's a there's a wide spectrum, right? Or like not seeing adoption of a product or like whatever it is. Uh, right. And, and oftentimes it's not external. It's not your competitor has magically figured out a bulletproof, you know, talk track that just allows them to have hundreds of conversations that are all converting and they're paying, people are paying them gobs of money and then they're growing, but it's good execution. So for example, you have your company differentiation, right? Does everyone know that? And I mean, everyone, if I ask 10 people from different departments at the company, do they give me the same answer? Nine times out of 10, the answer is no. Different people will give you their interpretation, their version. Even if I go product manager to product manager, when I first got there, I got different uh, lenses on that differentiation. And in hindsight, it makes sense, right? If I'm a product manager, just like I'm a product marketer, I live in the world of my product and only competitors that overlap with my product. I often don't think about how these different products come together and what that workflow looks like for the customer. And that's often where the friction lies, uh, is in between products. It's like small things like that, um, that I didn't, uh, I think I over-indexed on like the competition being like this super scary, amazing thing uh, that, you know, we constantly have to like watch the competition or we'll magically get crushed. Like, actually, no, <laughs> you know, like first principles, again, take care of what you can actually control, which is how quickly, you know, do new folks get indoctrinated in uh, your kind of methodology and approach here. How easy is it to find um, outside of enablement, right? Realistically, not everyone's going to attend, not everyone's going to remember. How easy is it to find these things later after the call? How often are they practicing? Is there space to practice in the organization? If not, people are going to be trying on live calls, right? And so 
those calls that you listen to on Gong, of course, or, or whatever, and you're cringing, that's someone trying to practice. And before you start shitting on them, you should ask yourself, where's the alternative, right, for them to practice? They're trying to adopt the, the talk track. Um, and it's risky, right? If you've ever been in, on the sales side, it's risky to do something different because that's that's a, your paycheck at the end of the day, right? People, uh, I, I don't think appreciate that enough of what it's like to have a paycheck that changes every single time. That's scary. And you know, you're know you very incentivized to not do things differently, especially if you feel like you figured it out. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. That's probably a really effective one for like, enablement training sessions attendance and like you know um adoption of enablement materials as a sales rep kind of like not having it on hand and then kind of like maybe falling on their face a little bit and then after the fact going how do i stop that from happening again oh there's actually all these great resources out there already especially if they're new i imagine and like maybe haven't had a very effective competitive intelligence program um you know where they've been previously um you know if they find that it's it's ready and available um, as you say, they're very incentivized to, uh, you know, get it right as quickly as as they possibly can, and from there improve and 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 get better and better. So, exactly. Um, right. Let's talk a bit more about Grafana Labs and, and what it's like competing in your space. Because something you mentioned to me um, before the call that I found really interesting is that many of your competitors are open source. Um, can you talk to us um, a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So the observability space uh, is is very fascinating in that, uh, and just to like throw out some names, right, of, of folks that you may have heard of is uh, the data dogs of the world, the Splunks of the world, AppDynamics, uh, all these different folks who some have been around for a long time, um, some are relatively new on the scene, uh, and then some are... Uh, completely open source, right? Complete alternative to any proprietary vendor. And what's been fascinating is unlike a lot of industries that I've seen, if you think about like uh, MarTech or anything in like sales, typical stack that you see, there tends to be a ton of consolidation. Uh, partnerships and acquisitions left and right, it just naturally happens. There are only like a few real winners. And I think the same principles still, you know, apply here where one competitor will realistically get, um, or there are probably two competitors that make up 60% of the total market share. And one of those competitors probably has like 40% you know, of the 60. And then there's a long tail of everybody else. But even in that long tail, there are probably 10 or so competitors that each have a billion plus in ARR. And many of them, most of them actually are public companies, all right? People who have been around, gone through the IPO process, still growing 30% year over year, 40% year over year. It's pretty, pretty impressive because uh, if you think about the, the wide swath that we uh, service, right? Grafana Labs, for example, has seven, eight different commercial products. We have some vendors in the space that have 20 plus commercial products. So you can just think about all the verticals, uh, all of the different types of use cases there. But the fact that there can realistically be so many, so many winners is pretty fascinating. Um, and I think what also you know makes my job fun at the end of the day, it is hard to compete in this space. But realistically, you know, if you're choosing a 
the right lane, you can be super successful. But at the end of the day, the alternatives are pretty vast, right? So you can buy a proprietary vendor. Realistically, in, in our surveys, we found that most teams uh, don't have one. They have four plus proprietary vendors. More than 50% of the folks who surveyed, which roughly like 2,000 customers, 50% uh, had four or more different tools. And this is across sizes, right? Everything from startups all the way to large banks of the world. Uh, and they have just regular committees now, every 12 to 24 months without fail. Sometimes earlier, they just reevaluate their vendor. It's not a like, oh, we'll wait until the end of the contract or this budget cycle. Like they're just constantly evaluating uh, because they're highly incentivized to. At the end of the day, what we're selling is reliability. We're selling visibility into avoiding downtime which for so many customers is very costly. There's like a very quick example to, to make it real. One that we've all faced uh, is Amazon Prime, right? Prime Amazon Prime has two big days uh, of the year when they make a shit ton of revenue and when they go down. Uh, in 2018, they were down for 75 minutes. This one is super public. You can look it up. Um, it came out, the math shook out to be $1.2 million every minute they were down. And they're down for 75 minutes. Uh, that consequence is pretty large, uh, right? When you think about doing that math. So if you're going to pay six figures, even seven figures to avoid even, you know, let's say half of that downtime, you're going to do it. Um, and if it means paying three different vendors <laughs> to make sure you're even more, you know, uh, protected, you're going to do that as well. Uh, and so lots of customers will, will invest in, in multiple tools for, for that reason. So at the end of it, you have proprietary vendors, but then you also have an open source alternative. Uh, and Grafana Labs is actually one of the few open source alternatives that also has you know, commercial products. So now as, as a customer, I can choose. I'll maybe have proprietary over there. I'll naturally get adoption with my open source over here. And then maybe I'll transition some of those open source offerings into uh, their commercial offering, or I'll take that open source offering and build on it myself. Right? And so now I have this DIY solution internally that I'm maintaining. But that choice is pretty powerful for a lot of customers. Uh, right? It's rare to see an industry where you have so many choices, but realistically, like so much revenue uh, as well. So that, would, that makes com competing pretty, pretty tough. Um, I know there's a lot there. We can, we can dig in more, but I'll pause to see if you have any follow-up questions. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like there's got to be, um, you know, some pretty big advantages and disadvantages to playing in a space like that. For example, like a, a, a super simple one, um, is Intel on those open source tools, um, like easier to acquire than for a closed source product? Like um, I imagine it would be just because they're open source or, or would that be um, kind of naive? No, I think you can apply the same principles. Uh, to scaling any open source solution is at the end of the day, there's going to be a point where it did no longer makes sense to hire the staff and try to find the expertise to run that open source solution at scale. Eventually, it usually makes sense to just pay someone to think about all of this uh, instead. Now, the hard part is figuring out what that point is. Because that point is very different for very different vendors, right? If you think about, uh, or sorry, very different customers. The willingness to pay for engineers, uh, the ability to get 
high quality engineers that understand these various systems and can figure out how to run them uh, at scale. And then what their attrition looks like, right? Like those three things are going to be very different across customers. If it's really, you know, hard for you to keep your engineers happy, you're probably not going to be investing in an open source solution because you're scared. The few good ones that you have, uh, they're going to leave, right? They're going to get annoyed because they're constantly trying to fix these, these issues. Uh, because these are developers at the end of the day. They want to spend their time coding. They don't want to spend their time. Uh, they want to spend time you know, building net new uh, products and solving complex problems. Figuring out why something is slow that is causing a website not to load, that's not a fun problem for most engineers, uh, the good ones anyway. And so it's, it's hard uh, for, for that reason. As far as that Intel, that's usually what the discovery is about. Like, okay, cool, you're using the solution today. Great, at what scale? How do you plan on growing that scale? Let's say I am I'm a, a buy now, pay later uh, company. Hey, we got Black Friday coming up real soon over here. How does that typically go for you? What about Cyber Monday? What about uh, you know US Christmas time period? How's that for you? What do those holiday spikes look like? What does that do to your system? How are you you know preventing uh, or proactively addressing any issues? How do you pressure test that? How long does it take when you find an issue? Do you find that you you know usually we can apply the the eighty twenty principle just like in sales? Twenty uh, percent of your sellers are the ones that are realistically helping you hit quota company over company, quarter over quarter, it's the same in engineering. 20% of the engineers actually know the system inside and out. 80% have to escalate to that 20%. So asking people, how often you know, uh, do you find the same people have to be on call, right? Just like a, a hospital rotation. You have to be on call on your phone on the weekends, at nights, in case you get a phone call. If something breaks, someone can't figure it out, you got to go then and, and work. People aren't going to do that consistently. Right, you have to diversify that that knowledge, um, and so that's that's the gap that we're selling from. And for most people, that knowledge is easy to acquire if you have trust. Uh, right, people will tell you their problems um, if they feel that you can realistically solve them. If there are any more kind of junior folks listening um, who maybe need a little uh, a little more um, in terms of practical tips and stuff like that, maybe they're thinking of moving to a business with an open source product, or they're looking to move to a space where there are a lot of open source competitors. Uh, do you have any kind of real practical takeaways or any practical bits of advice that you would offer to those people based on your experience so far? Yeah, totally. Great question. Fundamentally, it's going to come down to a balance between value creation versus value capture. And that's an important spectrum. Your open source community is going to always think about the, the value creation. Uh, right? How much are you doing for the open source? How much of your resources go towards free useful stuff for the community? And it's often uh, very easily vilified when you start putting, you know, for lack of a better term, a shittier version of your product behind a paywall, uh, right? Uh, or sorry, a shittier version in the open source and just put all the useful stuff, performance enhancements and everything else behind a paywall. Um, there are a lot of companies that did that and their reputation got destroyed. Uh, in the open source community. So that's one thing to to always think about. And you'll feel that pressure internally. I think it's a, a healthy friction between go-to-market and the R&D world on one is very much pushing on, hey, we need more differentiation between the two. And if you're not careful as a CI practitioner, especially open source is your biggest strength and your biggest differentiator, uh, but it can very quickly become 
uh, a competitor in of itself from a sales team perspective. They can think of it as this horrible alternative that they have to constantly figure out how to get around. But the reality is you're going to have a significantly better win rate when you're going to a current open source user and you're just telling them about why they should convert to a commercial product, right? Because hopefully your strategy is the things that you need to scale. Things like, hey, I need permissions and I need like the ability to have folders and I need the ability to have, you know, different teams and all of that stuff. Um, that's just going to be in your commercial product, not necessarily the, the open source, um, right? Like if I'm a team of one, two, three, I don't really care about any of that stuff. I'm an enterprise, 300, 3,000, 30,000, all those things start to really matter, reporting, et cetera, et cetera. It should be like a fairly no brainer, um, but it's a very big difference in like cold calling someone and trying to tell them, here's who I am. Here's why you should care about me. Here's what I can offer versus someone who already knows you already uses your open source stuff and just telling them how you can make their lives even better uh, with your commercial offerings. That's going to be super important. It's just focusing on that education uh, from day one, but also keeping a tight feedback loop back to your R&D teams, all right, to make sure you don't ever, you're cognizant of that delta, all right, of like, what is the difference in open source and commercial? What is a compelling reason for someone to go to your commercial offering. If there is no difference, obviously that's gonna be super challenging uh, to convert. And then you will cannibalize yourself, all right? And your sales team will hate <laughs> your open source e even more, uh, right? And so that that unhealthy or healthy friction can very quickly turn into unhealthy friction, but you can be the bridge, if you will, just like product marketers are, right? Of like staying close to the customer, both in the open source community going to community events, getting the sense of how people are thinking about uh, the tech of tomorrow, as well as talking to the large organizations. Uh, and I think what's surprising is like open source opens a lot of doors for you. Uh, they're naturally just adopting it, right? As an alternative, developers at the end of the day are tinkers, right? And your open source is a way for them to check out your tech without talking to anyone and see if it's legit for themselves. Uh, and then if it is, they're much more willing to talk to you, um, usually in a support type conversation, right? Like I ran into challenge A, B, and C. Can you help me with that? Yeah, absolutely. Very different motion uh, than cold calling, right? Where now you can go bottoms up uh, into an organization. That also means another practical tip is like, that also means a lot of people who don't come from open source will have to do some unlearning, uh, right? People who are used to just finding the highest person in the organization, getting their cell phone number, calling them, and then trying to push tech top down. That may work in HR uh, or different functions like that, maybe finance. It doesn't work with developers, right? There will be a, a, a like all out war in like you would think of a company like a Twilio or a Uber or whatever, right? If some VP comes and says, oh yeah, stop using all that tech, use this instead. They're going to be like, are you dumb? <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not going to do that, right? You're not a practitioner at the end of the day. And so you lose a little respect uh, because of that, right? When you aren't coding every day, you really, really need to keep those developers uh, uh, happy. And that's very top of mind for every CIO, VP um, at pretty much every, every company. So it's a very different motion. Uh, one that you can really evangelize. Awesome. Well, Farhan, it, it kills me to do this because I have, I'm having such a great time talking to you, but we're actually <laughs> pretty much out of time um, already. Oh, yeah. So I, I want to say thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, if you want to find out more about you, where can they do that? 
Uh, LinkedIn is best bet. Just look me up on LinkedIn, reach out anytime. Happy to talk to folks that are trying to break into product marketing, um, break into, honestly, anything in go-to-market, thinking more about competitive, how to scale competitive, how to earn credibility with sales, any of those things that that we talked about, um, or competing in open source and how that's uh, unique. Happy to have, happy to help. Awesome. Thanks so much for having Cheers. Yep. Thank you. By the time you hear these words, we will have released this year's edition of the Competitive Intelligence Trends Report. This is the report that examines the growth of CI as a function, year-on-year trends and changes in how the role is performed. In this year's edition of the report, you'll discover two surprising intelligence gathering methods that reign supreme for the fourth consecutive year, the five simple methods our respondents favored for finding competitor pricing intel when it isn't listed on a competitor's website, the recurring challenge that's still frustrating almost all CI pros, the surprising direction competitive intelligence budgets are moving in and what that might mean for you, and the easily overlooked soft skill that can make all the difference in the efficacy of your compete program. If all of that sounds like stuff you'd want to learn more about, then head to the link in the show notes to grab your no-cost copy of the Competitive Intelligence Trends Report. Thanks for listening.